0: This is Directional, a podcast about video games and the creative rebellion. With Chantal Ryan and Jörg Tittel.
1: Well... Where do we leave off, Chantal, do you think?
2: Uh, I think we left off looking for a direction.
1: (laughs) I think we have a title for this show, don't we? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's funny. We we, we are just very uncomfortably um, getting someone into our ongoing conversation. And this is uh, Andrew Feinstein right here hello
2: welcome
1: and what's very exciting about andrew feinstein is that we've actually already had a beginning of a conversation with andrew feinstein a couple of weeks ago um chantal do you want to talk about that a little bit or maybe andrew who wants to start
2: oh you're putting us on the spot Well, um, let's begin by saying that we do not play well with others. I heard because the talk that we all gave together was um, fairly corrupt from the message that I was given.
1: (laughs) It yes, it was. uh, For a little bit of uh, context here, dear viewer or listener, rather. We were invited – well, we kind of invited ourselves, technically. uh, (laughs) Accurate. (laughs) um, (laughs) To the uh, EGX video game conference in London at the beautiful
0: Abu Dhabi – what's it called again? Uh, Cell. Excel. Excel. Yeah, where where the world's biggest arms fair is held every two years. Oh, that's lovely. And how fitting – technically
1: for our talk which was called our panel which was called um, this video game panel is not political uh, which turned out to be a bit of a lie I would say
2: yeah
0: yeah I think that's accurate um, except I'm hoping that those in the audience had a sense that we were lying
1: yeah I think I think they all knew I think the people that th- felt that perhaps uh, we were going to be a little bit less um, Political might have been the sponsors of the event or of that particular stage, um, the Barclays Group. Um, but, but anyway, that's it's it's you know we, we could get to that. But it was really really fun because, um, well, I mean, I, I'm making this game. Chantal is making this game, um, the first of many, I think we are making. And we met at Gamescom, this other big video game conference, just a few weeks prior. And, uh, and so uh, it just felt fitting to sort of continue this conversation and and uh, and that then turned into this podcast thing that we're about to unleash on the world here. But um, what was cool about EGX is that, you know, I just wanted to bring someone else into the mix and because and, we were at this big thing and there was like Call of Duty booths and you know, lots of... I was going to say kiss kiss bang bang, but there's very little kiss kiss in games. I have just realized that the other day. It's more like bang bang.
2: Oh yeah, it's true, right? Bang 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 bang
1: bang bang bang. bang, bang. Uh, and all sorts of lots of lots of incels getting really annoyed by the fact that there's um, just that there should be more bang bang because they never get any kiss kiss in real life. But that's
2: yes, and also less vaginas because historical accuracy.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, everyone <laughs> knows that Assassin's Creed could have never had. A vagina or whatever the new thing, new topic, hot topic is. <laughs> yes.
2: And- whatever it is, vaginas certainly were not part of
1: <laughs> Yes. Even though he has ass in his name. <laughs> Sorry. No, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but uh, yeah, we were all <laughs> on this fucking stage. And it was lovely because it was the loudest stage I've ever been on. And um, because we were just cr- surrounded by all the noise of all the content at the show and, um, and they didn't even have a Wi-Fi connection. It, 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 Steve Boxer, who was a lovely chair, host of the panel, who's a freelance journalist, mostly known for his work for The Guardian, he was an absolute badass because he, almost, he kind of had to guilt trip them into doing this incredibly hard thing, which was to pick up this cable, which was already there, and plug it into our laptop. Eventually they did that, which was good. But it felt like they were almost trying not to help at first i mean thank you very much for our sponsors the barclays uh, group for uh, <laughs> um,
2: and, that- and now in your is not invited back
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then we did this 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 panel and uh, and and i would be sharing clips of it with you right now if the file which they recorded on the day, hadn't been corrupted mysteriously.
2: Mysteriously corrupted. No way.
1: I didn't know about that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The audio file apparently, there's an audio file that may exist actually, but the video uh, was sadly corrupted. There was a menu screen which unfortunately appeared all over the image and therefore makes it impossible for this video
0: to be shared. Isn't that interesting? Damn, and I didn't even now, have the opportunity to talk about Barclays' role in the arms trade because I didn't know they were sponsoring that stage. If only I'd, kn- I'd known, I'd have a whole story to tell.
2: And imagine how much more corrupted that footage would be <laughs> had <laughs> you had that opportunity. But it was alas, it was
1: so much fun. One of my favorite bits of that of that conference was um, of that panel was. Um, Andrew, talking about the military-industrial entertainment complex. What is that,
0: Andrew? Well, it's a it, it's a term coined by James Diderian, um, who is a professor both at Brown University and at a university in Australia. So somewhere near Chantel, I would assume, because Australia is very small. No, Australia. Yes, yeah,
2: on some vague island yeah.
0: continent. Yeah. Um, And he coined this term to encapsulate the fact that Hollywood in particular, but the entertainment industry generally, and I I think this includes games, which I'm not sure if James himself incorporated in, in the terminology or not, but the sort of role that it plays in promoting a particular view of war of militarism, of the global arms trade. So the sort of example that immediately springs to mind for me is is a film like Captain Phillips um, with Tom Hanks that came out, I'm not sure how many years ago. And I was asked to review the film by the film company that made it and to write about it. So I went off to a screening in Soho in London and came out of the film a bit shell-shocked and was immediately phoned I won't mention the company, but by the filmmakers, um, a fairly large company. And um, their response was, didn't you think that was brilliant? It really speaks to the sort of issues that that you're concerned about. (laughs) And I said, well, yes, but not in a very positive way. You know, the fact that the U.S. military required an aircraft carrier and two frigates to overpower two very underfed Somali pirates with AK-47s that looked as though they were about 50 years old. Um, And then there's the little matter that you completely misrepresented the role of Captain Phillips, whose entire crew turned on him because when the pirates actually did turn up and jumped on board the ship, he supposedly hid in a cupboard. Which very surprisingly wasn't shown in Captain Phillips instead he was the hero of the story. so I, th- I think it's stuff like that. it's it's creating heroes out of military figures. it's it's glorifying war, which of course the US has engaged in more conflicts and invaded more countries since the Second World War than most other countries combined um, and and I think this, this is a really important dimension for, for gaming to be aware of because I think it's reflected in so many games that one comes across. It's reflected in the mindset that underpins them. It's reflected in the fact that a lot of these huge expos like we spoke at a few weeks ago are actually used to recruit drone operators. And certainly a lot of the, the whistleblowers I've spoken to from the US military who've operated drones have been deeply traumatized by their experience in the military. And it's not quite what they expected when they were recruited at games fairs because they were very proficient players. Um, so there's, there's this whole narrative that I think is deeply, deeply problematic that needs to be stood on its head. So I'm very enthusiastically Involving myself in these activities, like the the session with Chantel and Yorg, um, where I felt as though I was the oldest person by decades in the building, um, but also in the hope that I'm, I'm going to persuade a few people to develop games that actually don't promote war, that promote the reality of war, the awful, awful reality. And the fact that what we understand as heroism is actually just... A very natural human reaction to conflict, which is that over 80% of elite Marines, SEAL units that go into conflict, over 80% of the individuals actually soil themselves when they go into conflict. Bet that's never been included in a game. It's really interesting.
1: I was talking to a guy who works for a US game publisher about this statistic, and he was in the Gulf War. And he said, that's absolutely not true.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I wish I could claim it was my statistic, but it's not. It was developed and I forget his name at the moment. I mean, he's a very famous former Marine, who has done a huge amount of work. He teaches at various US military academies. And he's, he's very pro US militarism. But he also thinks it's really important to acknowledge the reality of the mental health trauma. Absolutely. people go through.
1: It, it was so interesting talking to this guy as well because I was like, yeah, but I mean, I don't think people would admit to the fact that they just shat themselves going into battle. And he was like, no, we tell each other everything. I was like, yeah, what well, you also... <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 what, butt buddies. Really. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, you literally are known to beat up gay people and trans people, et cetera, like in the military. is that if you're such a fucking open community, like I doubt that you'll be talking about
0: shit in your pants, right? Yeah, and I I, I wonder if he's clear that it's um it's such an open community along racial lines, because many African Americans who I've met who've gone into the military for very obvious economic reasons, um, feel like second-class citizens. They feel that they are disadvantaged because of the color of their skin. Um, and so if this is such an open community, um, the notion of openness is a slightly weird one.
1: Yeah, Chantal, I mean, for instance, you, you I saw an interview with you the other day uh, where you're talking about um, sexism in the game industry, um, which, of course, mm-hmm. is... Uh, Problem, and and there's a strange overlap, a very interesting overlap between the military, industrial, entertainment complex. Was well, it an overlap or are they the same thing? It's hard to tell at the moment. But um, and and the way the game industry works, the sort of bro bullshit, the sort of toxicity of it. There was just TwitchCon the other day. Uh, multiple women were actually uh, one woman actually broke her back uh, being she was uh, for like she was. Uh, uh, made to do like a like the equivalent of like a mud wrestle, uh, but in a sort of ball pit, like a juvenile, the kind of thing, thing you see in a McDonald's, right? Because this reduces all and each other to fricking infants all the time. And they didn't put enough foam down. Amazon, which owns Twitch, didn't feel having the money. You see, there to um, you know they're quite a small indie yeah. operation. So,
2: well, I hear foam is quite expensive.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so these women were injured in there. And not only that, but multiple women were sexually harassed at the event as well, which happens.
2: (laughs) What a surprise.
1: (laughs) So what is what is what is your view on this?
2: Well, I'm like, I feel slightly more well-versed to answer this question than I would have a week ago, because I was recently listening to a podcast and they talked about um, a young Muslim man whose name I do not recall because I'm terrible with names, but he um, came from a very working class family. He was a straight A student, high achiever, um, and his parents had saved just enough money for him to go to college but they could not afford to send his younger sister to college. So he thought, you know what, if I go sign up for the Navy, I'm going to be put in a position to make money, have my university paid for, and allow my younger sister to also attend. Which is obviously very, very lovely and noble, and this was something promised to him by the recruiters that had attended his university and given him the grand spiel. So off he went um, to, I I guess, the training academy, the uh, place where they go to prove that they have what it takes to be a Marine. Um, And they had drill sergeants there. And this young Muslim man ends up being put under the cohort of a drill sergeant who is already under investigation for harassing another Muslim man. Um, He had been to war in the Middle East, I believed, and had picked up a heavy dose of extreme racism against Muslims while he was there. Um, Long story short, within a few weeks, the young Muslim man was put into an industrial dryer, which was turned on. Um, He had, like, all sorts of other horrible things happen to him. His fellow recruits were aware that these things were happening to him, but didn't feel they had any capacity to respond to what was going on. And ultimately, the young man died. Um, he fell out a window running to try to get away from his drill sergeant, who was humiliating him in front of everybody. Oh. Um, so, you know, an incredibly tragic story. Eventually, that was a big investigation. But something that came out to me that was quite you know I don't want to use the word fascinating in response to uh, a very real tragedy, but I was really struck by something that was said and that was that they the Marines had done a huge push to get diversity into their... Um, cohorts that were coming in. They wanted, you know, people trained in these language skills who were familiar with the culture. So recruiters had gone out and specifically tried to recruit young men like this Muslim man. However, they had not done the preparation work on the other side of this You know this large institutional process. They had not prepared the um, the receiving end of this like military industrial complex to be receiving these diverse people. There was no sensitivity training. There was no ensuring that you know that was no racism on that side. There was no acknowledgement that these people are historically. Um, going to be walking into uh, existing communities of people who hold very real prejudices against them. That must be overcome. Um, so yeah, there was just this really interesting phenomenon, uh, phenomenon observed of um, like these institutions recruiting diversity because it looked good for them, but not actually preparing for the real-world ramifications of what bringing diversity in entails.
1: Do you, do you feel the same as the case in the game industry?
2: Yeah, I absolutely do, um, 100%. There has been a huge push for bringing women into the games industry, bringing people with mental health struggles or disabilities, et cetera, et cetera. You see all these hiring processes that go in, you know, you have the job applications and the job descriptions that are like, we are a diversity-friendly hiring company. But the same thing happens. You find that there haven't really been internal processes that have addressed the fact of society, which is that there are a lot of existing prejudices and biases against these marginalized groups of people. And once you pull these people in, um, that's a whole other story. It's easy to find people. It's not so easy to make safe accommodating spaces for them
1: what i find interesting in this is that the other day i was uh, i mean i'm a big fan of a game called near automata which is you know this really beautifully crafted japanese game by a guy called yoko taro and his team and and um You know, there are certain aspects of it aesthetically that I just find a little bit annoying still, the sort of scantily clad sort of anime girl running around with big guns, whereas all the men are fully dressed, you know, she has to show off like, you know, at least 80% of her body and stuff. It's just a bit naff, but hey, you know, you sort of forgive it because it's all stylized and whatever. Um, But then I saw this... um, this this DLC this downloadable content or whatever that you get when you pre-order this game and it's like there is a revealing costume. you can you can get <laughs> you if you pre-order the game, you get to see her in the revealing costume. I' like what the fuck is that like like are we really still doing this? It's like revealing what like revealing, I mean, can you just say like tits and ass costume? Like, what? I, what? <laughs> Are you giving me like a story and plot twist in this? No, it's just like you're revealing her body a bit more. I mean, I'm not prudish. I don't give a fuck. Like, she could be naked for like I'll care. But why is this the this is the super bonus that you get when you buy it early?
2: Yeah, it's the salability of the female body.
1: Yeah, it's a prostitutional
0: sort of uh, uh, metric that's being applied to it. Mm-hmm. I mean. You, you talk about, uh, I mean, the prostituting of it is, is incredibly valid. If you go to an arms fair, mm-hmm. um, you'll find some of them, like the Paris Air Show, which is the third or fourth biggest in the world, which takes place at this huge airfield just outside Paris. And they're these little, very luxurious pop-up hotels. And basically what happens in these hotels is that senior military officials and politicians from buying countries, countries that are there to buy weapons, disappear into these hotels and surprisingly, unsurprisingly, they're staffed by these young, scantily clad women and there've been all sorts of allegations about what actually goes on. And, you know, the extreme that this goes to is the reality that Jeffrey Epstein, the late lamented Jeffrey Epstein, great (laughs) friend of Donald Trump and Britain's Prince Andrew made a lot of money in the arms trade because the services that he provided, which were effectively the trafficking of underage young women were in great demand when people were trying to to sell arms to, to countries. And when they're competing, not just on the basis of bribes, but who can offer them um, the best time, effectively. So, you know, the, the arms industry we're used to seeing in, for instance, the the motor vehicle industry um, at motor shows. There are these young women sort of draped all over cars, um, many of whom have probably never driven a car because they're too young to at this point. And... Unfortunately, the, the arms industry is the even worse variant of that. You don't see them draped all over the tanks and missiles, but they're in the hotels that are set up to entertain the buyers. It's funny we've had
1: a similar situation and evolution, uh, or in the game industry, where when I was working as a journalist in the a game journalist in the nineties, um, you know, literally every booth uh, at these conventions would have booth babes, right, as they called them. And uh, so we'd have fucking Super Mario, and there were these girls, like in bikinis, standing there in red bikinis and a blue hat, or whatever the fuck his colors are. And uh, you know, look, I'm I'm the Mario booth babe, and I'm the this booth babe, and 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 it was, and you had all these nerds that had never seen a woman in real life, um, sort of just just posing and taking photos of themselves, standing next to a real female specimen for the first time, wearing their favorite branded outfit. Um, It was very weird, but the people that made all the money early, like off off this complete objectification of other people and women mainly at that time, We're, of course, the likes of other people that are now in charge of the biggest money in the industry, whether it's people like Bobby Kotick, you know, who himself gives hundreds of thousands of dollars to Trump Republicans uh, or Republicans in general, um, et cetera. And and we know what kind of toxicity has been happening within Activision and how they treat their employees. it's, it's funny there is a lot of overlap maybe 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 every industry has this problem maybe all maybe all industries are male dominated blah 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 but i do feel hmm. i do feel that there is a huge amount of similarities between the arms trade and games
2: well let's go back to something interesting that andrew said right at the beginning of this conversation let's take another direction <laughs> um, sir I was very interested by what you said Andrew when you were talking about um, something to do with um, I don't want to mess up your court, sir I'll I'll draw my own line here I as a anthropologist who specializes in propaganda, I was very taken with something you mentioned related to how, um, like the military, industrial, entertainment complex, um, really kind of makes these hearers out of stories that really don't contain the heroism that we have assigned as uh, fictional celebrated heroism. It's a far dirtier, grittier kind of reality that is then misrepresented um, in order to create an allure and a desire for these more violent strains of reality. So to me, um, as a scholar of propaganda, when you describe that, I immediately go back to, um, this is fundamentally propaganda that is being sold. It is a war propaganda under the guise of entertainment because what we are doing is we are taking a gritty, dirty, story that involves a complete, you know, lack of fundamental ethics and um, really dehumanizes people. And we're putting this shiny veneer of story and glamour over it. We're making it desirable where it would not be desired before. That is the role of propaganda. It is to take something that would not have enticed a person and to make it enticing. So um, it is very interesting that, you know, I've, I've been holding that thought in my mind to go back to, but now we've moved over to birth babes and women and the scantily clad and the skin and the sex. And really, like, we are we're beginning to accidentally explore this psychology of propaganda where we are figuring out how people are um, essentially stacking psychology to add titillation on top of titillation to these glamours of warfare that are being sold to us.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I think you, Chris Hedges, who was for over 20 years the New York Times war correspondent, um, he was captured in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, imprisoned and almost killed by an American bomb when he was imprisoned in Iraq. Um, he was fired from the New York Times for opposing the invasion of Iraq publicly and was branded... Um, a Saddam sympathizer, despite the fact that he'd spent months in a Saddam jail. Um, he, Chris, who who is absolutely brilliant, and I would encourage people to look at his work, um, says that, you know, if, if the television news, if films, if games actually reflected the reality of war, the stinking human flesh, the frying of human bodies, the guts, the gore, that is the reality of conflict. The vast, vast majority of us would never allow our governments to go to war using our tax dollars or pounds or whatever else and doing this in our name to defend supposedly our values of freedom and democracy. And the reality is I have... You know, I I grew up in South Africa and I was recruited into the ANC, into Mandela's movement at a time when the black townships of South Africa were in open revolt against a racist apartheid government. And I went in to help some of these communities. I saw people necklaced. I saw people who were regarded as collaborators have a rubber tire thrown over their necks. It was doused in petrol and set alight. I've seen human bodies burning to death. And when I tried to intervene, my my ANC comrades looked at me and said, if you don't shut up, you'll be next. And you know that I've I've never seen something as horrific as that, something as, as viscerally disgusting as that, reflected in a film, in a game, on the television news you know, the Iraq war is symbolized by the pulling down of the statue of Saddam Hussein. Where are the over a million Iraqis who have died usually absolutely horrific deaths as a consequence of the US and its supporting countries invading Iraq? And I, I, I think Chris is absolutely right. And I think you are absolutely right what this industry does what the entertainment industry broadly defined does is is it is a tool of propaganda and it's therefore not surprising to find that some very big name hollywood producers um you know those who who aren't in jail for raping and molesting young women um many of them act as surreptitious arms dealers As intelligence assets for various governments. And the linkages between the military and these industries now are profound. If you look at some of the ownership chains in in a lot of the entertainment industry today, they're owned by the same ultimate holding companies who make weapons. And I think the, the important thing to understand about this militarism is that it's not to make us safer. It's not to make us more secure. If that was the case why is the United States built at probably around now $2 trillion, a fighter jet, the F-35? That doesn't work, according to the US Defense Inspector General. The brains of the thing, the combat suite just doesn't work and needs to be started all over again. What they're doing all of this for is to generate and circulate money Amongst themselves and in our political processes, I think Elon Musk will be able to
1: solve their engineering problems for them. I have full faith in him uh, to keep us safe. Uh, I think uh, he's he's a great man. Uh, uh, really, really love his work. Uh, but I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, you you for instance have lost a lot of ancestors to the Holocaust. Uh, um, you know, I've. I, I'm half Polish, half German. My, you know, half of my Polish family was decimated in either between the Gulags and Nazi and other Russian killings and things. Um, the past is like it seems to be so distant right now, especially in the world of TikTok messages that give us the attention span of a sort of uh, fly. Um, we don't even remember what we said, what we thought seconds ago. Um, needless to say, what happened, you know, the you know, in the first half of the last century, and now, of course, the shit is happening again, and you've got people being forcibly removed from Ukraine, uh, children separated from their parents, moved into uh, the modern day equivalents of gulags. We don't even know what the hell is happening on, in Russia at the moment, and yet, in the games, what we see is this. The veneer of quick killings and nice, agile mechanics. And isn't it f- – look, look, look at look at a Nazi's head exploding in slow motion. Isn't that cool?
0: Well, exactly. And, I mean, let's take the most extreme variant of that, which is obviously killing from a distance, drone killing, um, which has such a, a close linkage in so many different ways to the games industry. And, you know, the games makers, companies like Elbit Systems and others – Tell us about how accurate their drones are in assassinating targets, um, and you know it means no one's put in danger. It's it's only the bad guys who are put in danger. And then you speak to the actual drone operators, the people who effectively had to pull the trigger, and you hear a completely different story. You hear that to save costs the technology of the images that they're getting back, that they're having to determine their target through, are so bad, so grainy, that they can't tell whether the people in the picture are adults or children, men or women. And they're supposed to, on this basis, they're supposed to identify their targets and eliminate them. And it's estimated that for every drone killing there are usually 11 or 12 other people who um, who are sacrificed as a consequence because yeah, of our targeting. That's just, but that's friendly fire, Andrew. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, you know, it's so-called collateral damage. Yeah. Um, and while on the one hand I'm really grateful for the fact that people have responded to the Ukraine conflict with an enormous amount of empathy, even if um, – We sometimes, you know, they say that the first victim in any conflict is is the truth. And this is the case in Ukraine and Russia. You know, it's as though all Russians are bad, forgetting the, um, the number of Russians who are sacrificing an enormous amount to either refuse to serve in the military or to demand peace of their crazed leader. But at the same time, we also, you know, very conveniently forget that the Jewish Ukrainian president has incorporated neo-Nazi elements into the Ukrainian armed forces, that he has allowed huge streets across the country to be named after Ukrainian Nazis, and that there is enormous corruption on both sides, that an enormous number of people are making huge amounts of money out of the suffering of, of ordinary civilians. But I have to say, that what I do find difficult is the empathy we show for Ukrainian civilians, which of course we should, while at at the same time forgetting that American and British and European and Australian weapons have killed tens of thousands of innocent civilians since March of 2015 in Yemen, and we've barely raised an eyebrow. And so I think, you know, part of the propaganda that Chantel tells us about is also this sort of Manichian worldview where we can divide the world into good and bad, where we can divide the world into black and white interpreted in various ways. And the reality is the world is a fucking complex place and all of these things are very nuanced and it just isn't that easy. But to to buy into the militarism that makes what we call the global national security elite so incredibly wealthy, that really... Oils, our politics, and sadly, a lot of our politicians in both the figurative and literal senses, um, we've got to perpetuate these propaganda myths. And I think the gaming industry has to very seriously look at itself and look at the role that it plays in this, just as, as Hollywood needs to, just as what we call news nowadays needs to. Because, So, you know, I've, I've heard you your talk about... Uh, the role that games play and the entertainment industry plays in in the cretinization of the world, in really making all of us dumb and dumber, trying to stop us actually thinking about what is being done in our name by those who supposedly represent us where we are fortunate enough to live in what Greg Pallas describes as the best democracies money can buy because that's what we all live in, very sadly. Um, and, And I think this is... An absolutely essential part of it, and as Chantel says, that is the objective of propaganda. And I think we've got to be incredibly self-critical in the industries that we operate in, um, to be aware of the sort of broader role that we play in the world and what the consequences are. Because in this case, you know, we are talking about industries here, and I'm talking about the defense industry, the mercenary industry, the weapons industry. These are industries that count their profits in the tens of billions of dollars, but their losses should be counted in millions of human lives.
1: It's really interesting, like uh, how this debate has been, you know, raging through the game games industry and beyond the game industry. Uh, possibly, it's the only thing that people talk about in the context of video games, is the idea that games should make us violent. Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with the, with games making us violent but they certainly seem to be making us silent at the moment um and and also within like we're not we're not thinking but also games are training tools i give a good example I, I abhor guns and i cannot stand them but when my dad passed away in 2017 um it was his sort of funeral week and of course it was a harrowing time and it was there with my mom who was still with us at the time as well and my two brothers and my bro- my my medium brother I've, i'm the youngest uh he is sort of uh he likes to shoot guns on weekends and he's you know he likes his he likes to ride motorcycles and you know and, and all sorts of other man shit and uh and uh well, he does it with his girlfriend, who uh, who is not a man, so it's not necessarily man shit. Uh, to be fair, but anyway, they, that's that's their um, that's their thing, and um, and so I just thought because I just wanted to do something which was a bonding experience between us brothers, who had you know had been sort of apart for years in many ways, and etc. And now we have this horrible moment. And I thought this would be a good opportunity for us to unite between something behind something. And so we, so I said to Jan, it's like, let's, do, let's go to a shooting range. <laughs> and, and I don't know what struck me. I just thought it was the most absurd thing to do um, in order to not think about the death of our dad. And so he said, are you you serious? I'm like, yeah, let's fucking shoot some guns. Let's just check this thing out that you do on weekends. Let's Mm -hmm. do this thing while we're here. Because it was in uh, in the south of France where he lives. And so we went to this shooting range and there were all these like all these French, like ex-Algerian, legionnaire, whatever, guys covered in tattoos and big biceps and most of them over 60 and all arrived on their Harley's and shit. And, uh, you know, and they give me, and, and I sort of pay my sort of entrance ticket there and, and they give me these like headphone things to muffle the noise. And we go into this place and there's a kalashnikov uh, uh, ak-47 uh, uh, uh sort of sniper rifle a sort of handgun there's all like you can try them all out and you know you've got all these people just like shooting at these remote targets and i go to the kalashnikov one because i thought that was the most absurd one for me to try out first mm. and and they go like and and the french guy's like okay uh are you sure you know how to use this have you done this before i'm like yep i have Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I've played lots of video games. And he goes, and he goes, well, this is not the same thing. I'm like, well, we'll find out in a second, won't we? And I pick up the Kalashnikov and I ask him, so when I cock the gun, or when I when I shoot the gun, does it sort of like tend to sort of pull up or or sideways? Like, do you have to target a little bit below the, below the center or do you have to? And he goes like, oh, good question. You know your guns. I'm like, nope, I don't. I've just played fucking video games. <laughs> <laughs> and so i fucking scored the highest points in that place there are all these quote-unquote professional gun nerds the whole room suddenly goes quiet and go like what is this nerd kid doing here <laughs> he's the one who's not covered in tattoos he's the one who's not dressed like the rest of us and he's shooting the fuck out of these targets with all the different weapons right my brother was like slightly jealous as well. Sort of watching like, like this is fucking, quote unquote, community. And, uh, and his, his sort of, uh, you know, uh, argumentative, opinionated, sort of metropolitan brother there is like doing this. And I realized, fuck, these are, games are training tools. Like they're not necessarily training tools for violence, but they do train you. They, they do give you skills and, and the, the physics simulations and all those things are so accurate. like So why the fuck are we able to do such an accurate um, simulation of violence? Mm. But how, how come we can't do accurate simulations of, of empathy, of, of community, of, of caring? Um, I know it's tricky to probably pull that off and to make that exciting, but it is fucking exciting to connect to people.
0: Like Why can't we do that in games? And if we did, Right? Mm. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, I, w- I would assume that the primary reason, I'd be interested to hear what Chantel thinks of this, but yes, I would assume that the primary reason is empathy, love, community are not as easily marketable. That we have a marketing system that is a form of propaganda and we're pretty damn good at it. We'd have to retrain the entire advertising and marketing industries. Um, to actually be able to sell things that are, that are good for us that might not necessarily make the same levels of profit as the more evil things like weapons, um, like pharmaceuticals that do us enormous damage and various other things. And I think that at the end of the day for me is, is the fundamental problem. Um, I, I agree with you. I I don't know whether games make us more violent or not. What I do know, what is so obvious, is they glorify some of our very worst instincts and tendencies on the whole. And I think that that's where we need the wake-up call. You know, this this notion that we've got to be aggressive, that we've got to be strong because we are defending ourselves against those who who don't share our values, who don't share our way of life and who want to destroy that. And a lot of people have made huge amounts of money out of that. And a lot of people have had very successful political careers out of that. You know, I'm not sure the way the world is set up currently, um, that it would be as easy for politicians or as profitable for them and their corporate mates. And I think that's really the problem and why we see the focus that we do see. But it's it's also, you know, it's it's down to regulation. Surely, what governments should be doing is highly regulating things that are dangerous and not very good for us. And you'd think the manufacture of weapons would be one of those things. But as Amnesty International have said for decades now, the global trade in weapons is regulated less than the global trade in bananas. And, you know, if if we actually regulated corporations on the basis of if they're doing harm to society, our representatives have the right to stop them doing what they're doing. And I know that that sounds quite dictatorial, but I actually think that we as societies have a responsibility to do that. And it does become a very personal thing. You know, I don't mind people who go shooting at at shooting ranges. Um, if that's what turns them on, great, you know, let them do it as long as they're not killing actual people. Or, you know, as we saw in the UK, when we had a fairly left wing leader of the opposition, they'd actually put photos of this guy on their targets, and they would shoot at him to sort of indicate that they didn't want him to be elected prime minister and what they would do to him if he was. Um, But I think at sort of more reasonable levels, but I just think we invest in those things that are so damaging to us. They're damaging to us physically, psychologically, and and I think socially. They are incredibly damaging to us. And and we really we we need a reboot of society.
2: Hmm. I think what you're describing here, Andrew, is fundamentally the paradox of tolerance. So the fact that in order to be a tolerant society, we must have a level of intolerance for, um, if we do not, essentially, the more intolerant sectors of our society will eventually seize tolerance. Um, So here where we are. We're in a tough position um, where we are afraid of dictatorships, etc. So we make these big, grand claims in which we say that while we cannot regulate some things, for we need them for these reasons, and to take. The rights away. You know, I make a very American argument right now in the context of guns. <laughs> um, <laughs> not the case for somewhere like Australia where I live. Um, we did largely take the guns away, but you know, we'll get to that. Um, yeah, so <laughs> there's, there are different tolerance levels across different societies and as you've rightly pointed out there are different tolerance levels for different categories of things say guns and bananas we tolerate um limits and regulations at different levels for all of these things um and yeah sir so in order to tackle this this is this is Fundamentally a problem of human organization. Um I'll I'll go back. We'll draw on some of my anthropological studies here. You know, the fun stuff. So I see York has a big smile on his face right now. He's like, yes, let's go. Um so Talking about how, you know, marketing, etc., maybe empathy isn't marketable. Um, I would disagree that, you know, empathy is not marketable in and of itself, but absolutely in the societies we have in the ways that they are structured, um, we are not set up for empathy as, uh, much of a saleable tool. We are set up to market things that will make money. Now, that begs the question, why do we make money from violence and not from empathy? And this is why we'll go back to anthropology and we'll kind of examine two examples of potential human societies there have been, that we know of, a few examples of societies that we might describe as utopias. These, you know, existed long, long ago, and they were essentially wonderful places, highly egalitarian, very organized, very um, well-prepared and well-suited to their environment, so they had an abundance of resources and everyone was treated fairly, etc., etc. This is the thing that, you know, all societies aspire to in this world. These have come to exist, as far as we have been able to tell, at least a handful of times in the history of humanity. What happened to their societies? Is a, it's the most important question of our ages. What happened to their societies? is that less organized, less egalitarian societies who were their neighbors looked at the abundance and the peace and the resources that these you know, very collaborative societies had. And they went, I want that. I want those resources. I want that food. I want that shelter, etc." Now, to build a society like that and to build these resources takes an enormous amount of time and really just like talent. There's an element of luck to balance a society. Just sir. So. Sir, so if you're not a society that is well balanced and fundamentally egalitarian, you're gonna have to look around at what you do have to obtain these things that you want from that utopian society. What humanity and most of you know nature has had in abundance is violence. What you cannot build, what you cannot grow, it can be very easy to take, or at least that's your best shot of acquiring it. And so what happened to these utopian societies is their neighbors got jealous and they came with their clubs and their weapons and they just took them the fuck out. They just went, you know what? You guys aren't well trained in, you know, bashing each other's brains in. You're no match for our might. Um, And yeah, so these Utopian societies that lived in peace, they went, oh my God, what the hell is happening? Why aren't you my friend? Now I'm dead. Uh, The resources were redistributed. The balance was thrown off. There's Utopian societies crumbled. What were left were the fragmented remains of the violent societies. Um, Mm. I was just going to say, this has played out Uh, erva and erva and erva throughout all of human history. And human beings are mimetic. This is how we learn. We learn from the humans that we are exposed to as we grow. Our psychology is shaped by that which we observe. When the survivors tend to be predicated on the mightiest, those most willing to use violence, Um, This is sadly what we will end up with and this is why violence becomes saleable because it is resources at the end of the day.
1: I think that's beautifully put. Um, I think the one thing that does survive um, is, is art and poetry and ultimately those sort of pure expressions of human empathy and connection that are so essential. And uh, they tend to survive because they are they're the ones that are printed on paper or on canvas. Um, uh, although, you know, to talk about the destruction of something beautiful, you know it takes it can take years to paint a canvas, but it will only take mere seconds to destroy it. Um, and uh, well, that's one of the things that, that i i I found objectionable about the indiana jones films for instance where the nazis are portrayed as these great uh, seekers of ancient arts (laughs) they really they really give a fuck about preserving right uh these these ancient egyptian artifacts and shit right it's like those fuckers Literally rode into countries and decimated everything. And when they found something that was remotely resembling gold, that melted into shit and make money of it. And to portray these people as these, like, you know, these art collectors yeah. really pissed me off so much. And then, and that's a good example because, like, that's the, those were three, three, four, and maybe no five of these films made where the Nazis are these, you know, Art collectors <laughs> and uh, these nerds,
0: these like incredible aficionados of cool shit, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's a little like, you know, so many of the arms dealers that I've investigated over the years invest huge amounts of money in getting films made about themselves that present them. They've never been arms dealers in these films, they've been lifelong philanthropists and they produce these so called documentaries about themselves and about their role in the world. And what's interesting about it, is they want to be perceived of, they want to be seen as um, endorsing, fulfilling, and spending money on the good sides of humanity. And that's the ultimate irony when they are the real evil. And I mean, these sort of renditions of themselves as as good people does suggest that the vast majority of us do want to be seen as good people. We do want to be seen as living a sense of empathy, a sense of community. Um, But as you say, the way in which our societies have become organized in order to maximize our access to certain resources works against that. But the fact that there is still this desire to be seen in a particular way, and I mean, uh, social media displays this perhaps more than anything else, in the most laughable ways, possibly. um, It does give me a little bit of hope, because I do have the sense that if we simply accept our lot, well, this is the lot of humanity, this is how we will always be, then we are fucked because total annihilation is the obvious consequence um, of our history. And we obviously hope that the Ukraine is not going to be the moment for that. Um, but given the craziness on all sides at this point that it's not beyond the realms of the possible, but there has to be a point at which we reach that tipping point where enough people realize what is being done in our name is actually incredibly harmful to us in so many ways. But in addition to that, and crucially, It's also to the massive material benefit of a very, very tiny minority of us. And it's funny how it's that minority that seems to set the rules, that it's that minority who seem to determine whether we're going to war or not, what we're going to spend our money on, whether it's going to be healthcare and education rather than weapons, whether we're going to be concerned about the environment. And I, I do think that we're getting to the point, I mean, I would like to think in the sort of the notion that that Karl Popper had of paradigms, that the sort of neoliberal paradigm is in its end game because it is disadvantaging so many people and more and more people all of the time that I'm not sure that it, it can survive in the way that it's had. And in fact, we're going to find, I think... That the neoliberal era was a very short era, ultimately, and and the, also what's interesting is like that that we've it's reached that
1: point where they now have to put the stupidest people in charge of it, like it's never been. I've never seen. I mean, you look at Sweller Braverman here, like you. you, you
0: well, you, you look you look at our at our prime minister, who <laughs> I mean, people I know who've met her. This is Liz Truss, who is is the new prime minister in the United Kingdom, and quite likely might be the shortest prime minister in British political history. Because people who've met her, who I know, say that they have never come across someone who is so awkward with other people. And there's got to come a point where, if you put completely incompetent people in charge over and over again, as we've seen. I mean, you know, she was preceded by a professional clown, in Boris Johnson. And if you put enough of these people in charge and the situation gets so bad in that society, I mean, to give you an example, I lead a pretty comfortable middle-class life in London, um, but my electricity bills have just gone up 740%. Um, And, you know, for me, that's difficult. For a huge number of people in the country, that's completely unsustainable. And they're going to have to make the choices, whether they have heating this winter or food for their families. And I think there comes a point where there is such a level of incompetence that even the best propaganda um, is unable to compensate for the reality of people's lived lives. And I, I do think that that is the sort of stage that we're getting into. And I do think that that sort of anthropological analysis is so important because we need to understand that to be able to move beyond it. And I do like the fact, and one of the reasons I'm really enjoying this call, and you might not like this label, York, but I am constantly called wherever I go in the world and wherever I speak in the world. You know, I talk about the, the very brief four years we had under Nelson Mandela in South Africa, where literally every decision that was made was made in the national interest. Mandela didn't need to cling on to power. He was only serving one term. He knew that the ANC was going to get his party, was going to get huge majorities for decades and decades to come, whatever they did, which has been a case in point. So under him, everything was done in the interests of national unity and national reconciliation and in the broad interests of the society. It only lasted four years and then a whole lot of corrupt people took over from him. And you know, unsurprisingly, it was a multi-billion dollar arms deal that was the sort of moment at which the anc lost its moral compass and a consequence of investigating it is why i lost my seat in parliament but so i do i do feel that that there are possibilities and wherever i go in the world people say to me oh my god but you are so naive and idealistic as though i'm supposed to be deeply offended by these labels and i say to them well You know, if what you mean by naive and idealistic is that I believe the world could be organized in better ways, that we could govern ourselves in better ways, that we could live lives that are a lot better and more fulfilling for far more people, then absolutely I'm fucking naive and idealistic and I want to die naive and idealistic because I think if we lose that idealism, then we are finished. Then we, then you know, we, we might as well have Joe mm. Biden if he has the strength in his finger, and Vladimir Putin pressing the buttons, because <laughs> then there's nothing to live for.
1: What I loved about and this ties what Chantal said about the paradox of tolerance. Um, oh, the, the paradox of tolerance that sh- that that Chantal was talking about uh, in the context of what we're talking about now, the context of um, reconciliation and forgiveness. What is wrong right now is that the intolerant assume that tolerance should extend to them when in fact tolerance stops at intolerance. Like you can't have tolerance if it, if it were to uh, allow intolerance to exist. Um, however, the whole idea of reconciliation and forgiveness, uh, a profoundly empathic thing that, that, Man, that Nelson Mandela made his, his MO, Uh, as a leader was that yeah we're forgiving you because we want you to live leave your intolerance in the past it it is not a a fundamental human right to be an asshole um you you know you no longer get to be that now but we forgive you for having been one and and that's the same thing with with trump supporters and uh crazy anti-vaxxers irrational people like listen i understand that the world is complicated i understand that you have fears i understand that you're projecting your fears in the most irrational ways and and letting them out on 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 people that you know are sort of victims of your stupidity and that's all right but you are not protected under human basic fucking expression rights to be an asshole. and and the game industry for it is fundamentally playing a big part in this because this is an industry that says we are not political we don't take sides we just make content um and 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 i have no tolerance for that
0: either well, i mean not taking sides is is the ultimate political choice because as as archbishop desmond tutu said if you're neutral in the face of injustice, you are supporting injustice because you are doing nothing about it. So this notion that the gaming industry Mm -hmm. is somehow neutral, doesn't take sides, is the biggest load of bullshit imaginable because every single game that is made is taking political sides. It's a matter of whether it's aware of it or not. And it really worries me. I, 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 I come to this industry through the two of you which I think is, is probably not reflective of the mainstream of the industry. Um, but, you know, it does, it does seem to me, as I've engaged more and more with this industry, the lack of self-reflection besides a sort of a very small minority of people is actually quite terrifying when one thinks of the impact that this industry has on the world. Um, and how, you know, you talk about your experience of being very good at games, uh, transfers into being very good on a shooting range. And the reality is, you know, a lot of the drone operators I've, I've interviewed and dealt with and helped over the years, that's how they came to be drone operators. That's how they were being, that's why they were being asked to kill people in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Iraq, because of their proficiency at playing games. So, you know, these are, not, these are not vague, esoteric links. These are links that are very direct, very measurable, and very terrifying. And they're also links that are deeply embedded in what Chantal was talking about, in, in the anthropology of our existence and the way in which the industry is, is framing that existence and the choices that are available to us.
2: I, I mean, Andrew, you are not familiar with this, yoga. Yeah, I don't know if you are, but uh, the U.S. military has directly sponsored video game events, I believe even Twitch ads for a while. Um, it is absolutely directly funding the games industry on a consumer level, not just, you know, in the money that the arms trade is pouring in from a uh, publisher level, but they are trying to recruit from the gamer player consumer base for, you know, these like pre-trained, pre-conditioned soldiers that are being created. Um, So yeah, you're absolutely right. They're not esoteric links whatsoever this is a very very deeply intentional cultured um approach in which there is no extricating the video games industry from the military industrial complex they are absolutely hand in hand and i'm thinking right now that uh you know in the process of doing this podcast maybe we need to pull a games historian on board maybe we need to get someone actually following these links and following this up and calling people out saying hey okay we actually you know we're gonna put our money where our mouth is we're gonna dig up and dig around and actually see what we can find in terms of who's funding these pushes for you know violence and um the soldierization of video gamers and all of these things why are so many of these games getting made versus these other games that you know are actually there are a market for non-violent video games we have unpacking by Witchbeam beam games that recently sold like many many millions of dollars worth um and that was a beautiful story about you know a life simply what it means to be a human living a life you hardly hear about how many copies that game sold um but it did incredibly well but we're not having huge pushes of funding toward these games that are exploring the human condition. We are getting the, the multi-multi-million dollar ads for the Call of Duties and the Gears of Wars and all the rest of it.
1: Now we're the indies, you know. We're the <laughs> we're the nice little indies. We're the ones who are allowed independent thought. We're the ones who are allowed individuality. We're the ones who are allowed uh, personality and and meaning. But but everything else is business. And you want to keep that stuff nice and separate. I mean. It's a uh, it, the interplay between the military also and the game industry goes far far back. And of course, uh, um, I'm a massive Sega fan, and uh, and I was a big Sega arcade fan as a kid. And I was quite dismayed by the fact that I think it was the Model Two arcade hardware on which like Virtua Fighter and a bunch of games were running. Um, that was uh, running on a Lockheed Martin chip. Like and I was say like, how the fuck how did that deal happen? <laughs> how, how did how did Lockheed Martin go to Sega in Japan and go like, hey guys, uh, we have some ways in uh, which you can render some nice stuff. <laughs> there must have been some sort of exchange there that was Lockheed Martin didn't need Sega's money. Like what what went down there, right? Yeah. And then and then years later the there was the connect, the the Xbox Connect sort of motion detection sort of thing, which was uh, designed, the technology behind that, where you wave your hands around and it recognises what you're doing, was actually developed by a contractor for the Israeli Defence Force, uh, in which they were somehow able to find to differentiate between whether a, it was just a Palestinian kid holding a ball uh, or a bomb. Of course, we've as we know that worked out really well because yeah. they've been not been killing yeah. children at all. So. So that then became the basis of the uh, Microsoft Holodeck, or whatever it's called, Mm. their HoloLens. The HoloLens, which, of course, is the biggest contract uh, between a game or technology company and the US military in possibly ever, I think it was a $22 billion contract in which, uh, AR sort of enhanced soldiers will soon soon be walking around. They can see the interior of your entire house, your body, your social data, everything projected on top of you, and decide whether they, you get to live or die based on that. It's so, yeah. The interplay is completely direct, um, but I'm not sure that we're, we we should fucking tolerate it anymore. Is my I, why should that even be allowed anymore?
0: Well, <laughs> you know it. I mean, the, the, the very interesting thing here. So that sort of moves to the question of, well, what do we do about all of these things? Yeah, and you know, the first and most important thing is is to be revealing them. I think that's crucial, and I'm very grateful that you invited me onto the podcast for that reason. And any of the sort of the the facts and figures that I give that um, your friend battled with, including how many elite soldiers soil themselves. They're in the sort of almost 3,000 footnotes to my book, The Shadow World Inside the Global Arms Trade. Um, But I I think exposing the realities is is an absolutely crucial thing to do and the linkages to sort of to, to decretinize, if you will, to try and, and battle against the process of cretinization. And then I think there are different ways to, to take on these incredibly powerful interests. And they range from everything, to, from you know petitions to consumer boycotts to direct action. For instance, in the United Kingdom, there's a small group led by a British-Palestinian woman called Palestine Action, And they discovered that Elbit Systems, who we mentioned earlier, who are uh, the sort of, the pioneers in in drone technology, or certainly were, um, an Israeli company, but it has or had 10 factories in the United Kingdom. So this group um, started actually taking direct action against these factories. And causing criminal damage at the sites of the factories. And two of the factories have closed down permanently as a consequence. There have been, they have hundreds and hundreds of supporters who do this now around the country. And the most interesting thing is they they all get arrested eventually. And when they do go on trial, because a lot of the trials just get canceled before they happen. But when they do land up going on trial, the vast majority of the magistrates have determined that they were committing a smaller crime to prevent a far greater crime. So, you know, I think the other thing in this conversation is that we shouldn't forget about our own agency Mm -hmm. because part of the process of Mm -hmm. cretinization is making us feel helpless. Absolutely helpless and, and impotent, and that all of this is happening and is being undertaken by far more powerful, far smarter people. And, you know, that's bullshit. I come from a country where there are on average 19 social protests a day. You never hear about them, but local people, because they're not getting the services, because there's a huge amount of corruption amongst their local representatives, they protest about it and they try and make life difficult for those people. We in countries like the United States and Britain, you know, if we can be bothered, we vote every now and then. And then we we think and somehow we're engaged citizens. Of course we're not. This is all being done in our way, in our name. And it reminds me of, of Margaret Mead, the not uncontroversial American anthropologist whose work I'm sure Chantal knows very well. But what mm-hmm. I really like about Margaret Mead's life story, I don't agree with all of her theorizing, and but... You know, when she was 15 or 16, her father said to her quite explicitly, you need to stop going to school now. You need to look for a husband and you need to help your mother more in the house. And she very politely gave him the finger by becoming the first woman to receive a PhD from Harvard University. (laughs) And at the end of her life, Margaret Mead wrote that history is changed by the actions of small groups of thoughtful, committed citizens. It has always been the case and it always will be. And I think if there's one message that we can transmit, be it specifically about the nature and functioning of the gaming industry, be it about its links to militarism, be it about the pervasive military mindset that so dominates the world now or the crazy economics that our leaders tell us are the only alternative, there is no alternative, all of these things, which are all nonsense, that we have agency. And we must start using that agency far more powerfully, wherever it is we live, whatever our involvement in these sorts of issues is, however remotely um, we may think we are linked to them, is to just remind ourselves. And it's really interesting, if games indeed are such an accurate
1: simulation, of the real life, then why can't we as individuals have the same power as players within the real world as we do inside the games? And uh, do, 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 do you you oh, absolutely. It? It's crazy. It's like we feel like we can only do the shit we want to do inside games now. A- absolutely. And then once we fucking turn the controller off, we go like, okay, well, here I am now.
0: Well, it also, I mean, at some level, and I know this is a <laughs> bit of a caricature, but at some level, it's sort of sapping us of that very agency because, mm-hmm. you know, after after hours and hours of playing games where we've been heroic, we're exhausted. We're yes. far too exhausted to do anything mm. about real life.
2: Absolutely. It's escapism.
0: Yep.
1: Yes. But uh, it's interesting. But Chantal is drawing increasingly bigger and bigger crowds as I – as I wisely predicted when I first saw what she was (laughs) worth Such a genius. Because uh, her game Dark Web Streamer is is doing something very, very clever where it's, uh, well, doing many, many different clever things. But one of its clever things is that on the surface level, it's a horror game. And on the surface level, it's, really cool. And at surface level, it's really fresh and unique in its tone and all that kind of stuff. And on the surface level, it's a genre product. Um, and then when you start diving into it, then it's all about empathy. And it's all about the understanding of humans and what we do to each other and what we do to ourselves profoundly as well in the context of technology and and the loneliness that comes with it and the need for attention that arises from it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that is a feeling that is so, so strong coming from their product where people, where a community is now forming around this game, where people feel, fuck, I, I feel understood. Mm. Fuck! I want to be a part of this because this is tapping into a feeling that I've we've all had and we couldn't put our finger on. And the game is not about fucking shooting people in the face. It mm. doesn't even have three D graphics. It doesn't. It doesn't do any of the shit that's considered fucking right, uh, commercial or whatever. But and but the intent is so strong behind it that it's doing it. And I think. Um, uh, the other day, when I was working, I was doing a, a bit of a talk with Frédéric Renal, who's a French game developer, uh, one of the legends. He created this game called Alone in the Dark. And he said, What I, and we we're working on a little project together, and he said, What I love about working on the project with you is that I feel like that the making of the game itself is a game. We're having fun, we're having real agency in making it. We're not the slaves to a product, we are. Um, we are a communion. We are working together in order to realize this thing with a voice, mm-hmm. and and that and I, and I freaking understood why we're doing what we're doing. And if we all put that energy behind what we do, and we give people agency, not just in yeah. the in the consuming of it, not just in the um in the, in the in the on the consumer front, but also in the making of it. When we feel powerful when we make the shit, because we actually know we're fucking talking about while we're doing it, I think that will change
0: things.
2: Mm, Yeah, I completely agree with you and your. Calling back part of our earlier conversation in which I did make my doom and gloom speech about how the mighty and the violent do come across and decimate the more utopian versions of humanity. Um, and, you know, you, you guys rightly responded by invoking art and love and, um, you know, human collaboration we, like, I think, you know, Andrew said, what do we what do we do about this situation of this glorification and, uh, you know, like hyper capitalization of violence? and um art is <laughs> has historically been the response to the dying of humanity and of love and respect and life itself. Um, I was thinking of the warrior poet. That has absolutely been a thing throughout all of history. Uh, Often poets have even like, like led soldiers into war they have sung the songs and led the chants that inspired theirs who would not otherwise have been compelled to stand tall against oppressors. The they have been the ones to kind of ring these bells of like, what is really true heroism? You know, Andrew Ellie, you talked about this like glamit heroism that does not exist but then you know like we do have people going back to ukraine right now we have these everyday people who were just peacefully living their lives who have had their homes invaded and they just stood up and they went not the fuck today yeah i like that that is heroism it's when you say i will not give up in face of oppression Um, like to me, that is art in itself. It is like the fire of the spirit. It is like independence and uniqueness. Um, And we, you know, going back to agency, we can take some of that fire. We can take an ember at least and we can blow on it and we can try to make fires where we are as creators, We can, you know, take these communities that we are building and bring them to these projects that we are creating. And as long as we are infusing these projects with like genuine love, and as you say, fun, which I like, I do believe this concept of fun and this experience of fun is actually like another aspect of love. Um, Yeah. I think if we do infuse our projects with that, we are bringing people back to humanity. There is not a distancing anymore. It is a an embrace of love. And you know, like going to my game and you mentioning how people were really responding to that. That is something I saw this weekend when we exhibited at PAX is people were Coming and they were bringing their friends back. Not like once or twice, hmm. but like you know, four different groups of friends. Someone would bring back and say, "You know, like I just they needed to see this game because there's just something so different about it. It like made me feel differently, and like I really have no doubt that that thing they couldn't put their finger on because they're just so not used to it." is this like overwhelming sense of like love and engagement with humanity where where, we're looking at what makes people people and what it means to be a person and we're asking people to engage with that alongside us and in and of themselves with saying, you know, like, how does it feel to be a human? How does it feel to be this human? And these are questions that people do not ask very often, particularly in the realm of gaming, where escapism and, you know, like addictive mechanics and exploitative psychology reign dominant. Um, there is so little of that engaging with the psychology of loving and of being human beyond a violent experience.
1: It's sort of I think the idea Mm. of escapism also is a profound separation from what uh, the environment and the people you should take care of. Um, The idea that you want to run away and just drop everything is a feeling that only someone like Jeff Bezos on his cock rocket would have (laughs) because no one loves him back. So of course he wants to go into space and see if maybe he might meet some alien race that he can also then dominate because i understand that you know he's already dominated us here and there's very little love he's getting back <laughs> in exchange it must be a very lonely existence but the idea of escapism i find is a problem because we 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 actually don't have time to escape right now the time has run out. The idea of us having to run away from this reality when in fact it is so fucked. And the fact thats that there is fascism on the rise and the fact that, that, fashion, the, the, fact that uh, the earth is increasingly polluted and, and all these beautiful creatures are dying out every day. Uh, no, we shouldn't escape. We should dive into this deeper more than ever before and it was interesting, this this uh, William Shatner the other day, I read this, uh, do you read? Uh, he He's 90. He was 90 mm. when he went onto Jeff Bezos' cock rocket the other day uh, <laughs> on the Blue Origin. And Jeff Bezos was all excited about having the Star Trek guy, you know, good content, <laughs> you know, good marketing yeah. there up on a rocket. And and William Shatner just felt this immense sense of loneliness up there. Um Yeah. He, he was looking looking back at, at this beautiful earth down there which is which is the only thing that seemed to be giving life in in this vastness and this darkness of space and he realized that that our, all of our difference are what unite us down there and we have to find a way to coexist deeper uh, more profoundly than ever before and and it was only through being, but through technology, the most extreme example of nerdism, pulling him out, uh, allowing him to escape, so to speak, from the planet that he realized he was escaping too far. And, and I think that's where we're getting now with games. We're, mm-hmm. escape, we're on that spaceship with Bezos right now. We are on his fucking content cockcraft. And, and we're now having to start look back and realize, you know what? Nah, fuck you. Yeah. I'm going to go back to the people now. I'm gonna be with them. Yeah. You can fuck off. I'm not escaping anywhere. Yeah. This
0: is my home. Yeah. It's it's really important just listening to you both, I think, that for the sort of games that, that you're creating, um, that, that you ensure that, that there are many communities in the world who would love to know about these games, who, you know, gaming is not something that they ordinarily engage with at all. And I think it's really important to ensure that the sort of game Chantel that you're producing, that it people know about it in communities who wouldn't normally look to gaming to to have their humanity affirmed, to have their um the good things about them affirmed and i think it's really important and if i can play any role in helping with that i'd i'd really love to there is a, you know you'd, you'd actually be surprised how huge the peace community around the world is because the mainstream media just pretends it doesn't exist um, but it actually is much bigger than i think people realize and these are people who who want their basic humanity to be recognized and to be restored in some ways, and it, it also reminds me that, you know, veterans who had to fight wars, who've had to engage in conflict, who, as we, we said earlier on, often do so out of economic necessity um, or out of some sort of false promise that they've been given, the example that Chantal spoke about. Um, more veterans, have committed suicide just in the United States of America than American soldiers have died since the beginning of the Second World War in combat. And I think this gives a sense of how especially those people who have suffered the real and immediate consequences of the world we live in by having to engage in these conflicts, you know, the the sort of thing that you're talking about, it's so important that these sorts of communities be aware of them and that they realize that there are people out there who actually understand what it is to be human and recognize their humanity. What are we doing if not,
1: like, uh, just presenting an alternative to to what, you know, we have potentially defined as the... Uh, a military-industrial entertainment complex, but but I th- also we are here, and we are. I think the interactive medium of games, of whatever you want to call it, is is where the new warrior poets of today yeah. will will send the message. That's where we will gather uh, troops, and not troops that are here to spread violence, <laughs> but here to defend themselves against the oppressors of nihilism of cretinization of of all the things that are ultimately bringing us down and keeping us passive and making sure that we just consume content rather than actually um combine forces with with love and empathy and respect mutual respect and forgiveness um but uh but I th- I think we'll we'll get there I think I mean it's not it was when i met chantal then I, that i finally understood that people are there not not to just make themselves feel good on a marketing level that they're doing something because on this because St. Tal's game for instance is not overtly about any of those things yeah. it's not a game it's like oh look I put a couple of you know LGBTQ characters in my game <laughs> and now I am now I am actually like really inclusive and yeah. check it out but it's still about shooting <laughs> zombies in the face and all the other bullshit hmm. it's
2: but if you order the pre-release it <laughs> <you're> a <laughs> very sexy <laughs>
0: <laughs> Revealing
1: <good>. lesbians.
2: Mm. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> Let me say in response that I just uh, I wish both of you all power um, because I think this is so important. I think in every in every aspect of our lives we need people like yourselves to be thinking about these things in very different ways and to be utilizing the creativity and skills that you have. Um. Not just with one's bank balance in mind, but actually with humanity in mind. and it's it's wonderful to to have heard about all of this and to have heard about the game. Um, and really, I just hope you go from strength to strength, and that this this game is a way, this is this is the start of of the gaming warrior poets. And it really inspires people. and most important of all, It just makes people feel that they are understood and that they're not abnormal people in what is claimed to be a normal world, but in fact, they are the normal ones in what is a truly terrifying world at the moment and a world that we all have a responsibility to change.
2: Mm, It is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society
0: very true thank you andrew thanks so much and and all the best to both of you thank you thank
2: you you so much
0: well um everyone that was
1: that was andrew feinstein and um i thought it was a wonderful uh, way to spend a an afternoon slash late late night slash early early morning for paul our producer in los angeles
2: <laughs> thank you paul for waking up at 6 a.m to record this yeah and thank you andrew for the wonderful brain that he shared with us um and so nice to meet people motivated by the same peace and love rhetoric that clearly we have bonded irva.
1: Yeah, but also without being the sort of cliched um, hippies um, that, uh, you know, we're all being reduced to uh, by these great war makers and warmongers out there.
2: Yeah, no, that's a very vicious kind of peace and love that I am happy to claim as our brand. We are children of our generation after all. And yeah, this is absolutely something that we will need to fight for. We need to fight for a more empathetic society. A society that celebrates creativity and humanity and compassion over other things. And, you know, the people who make money and are well invested in the the less uh, lovely and compassionate aspects of existence, they are not going to... Let go of that money, make it so lightly. So, yes, we do have to get a little aggressive about it. We do have to call people out, And, yeah, we got to get our vicious on in the most loving way possible.
1: Yeah, it's what I like to call a fuck you hug. You know?
2: How we go. That's the spirit. Let's put that on a t-shirt. <laughs>
1: Yeah, let's let's kill him with kindness.
2: Hmm well I guess we'll be taking a strange and surprising new direction next time on Directional
0: Directional is hosted by Jörg Tittle in London, Chantal Ryan in Adelaide, and produced by Paul Bennin in Los Angeles for rapid eye movers. The theme song was composed by Oliver Krauss and Frally Hines. Follow us on Twitter at Directional Show and listen to past episodes at directional.show. See you next time.